so you should all have a little outline there, a little booklet um, there on the table somewhere. And um, I've been praying about going through a, a little series like this on Christianity, uh, cults, and and just uh, world religion, just because of the day and age I think we we live in, and um, you know we li- we live in a such a, a modern society today that I mean people can with literally no money down go start a new religion and before you know it they're on the internet they're on tv they're on the radio and uh you know it's just this is kind of crazy how quickly people can and do things like this and so it's never been like that before it's never been possible to do something like that to captivate an audience um with teaching and things like that um it's it's so easy to do now and so we're, we're, as Christians, we live in a society where we're constantly having to deal with a lot of uh, religious diversity. There's a lot of different people out there from different faiths, different religions. Uh, there's a lot of competition to earn their ears, to hear the truth, uh, because they're, they're being uh, fed a bunch of other stuff. And there's also, that leads to a lot of confusion. And so, you know, I just thought it'd be good to go through a, a series, and these People who are, you know, they may be well-meaning, but they're they're not representing the truth. Maybe show up at your job or your home, your doorstep, or maybe even members of your family have entertained a cult at times or uh, a certain sect. And so, you know, why do we select these certain uh, religious? Groups to to study. Well, they're the most prevalent, and this isn't by no means meant to be a thorough uh, study of this. This is purely superficial. It will go into some depth, but it's it's more meant to be a summary, just to kind of give you a, a little purview of each each religion that we'll uh, go over. Um, but we're also today the one thing we're finding out is that we're we're having to deal with um, not just false religions and false teachings and cults and everything, but they're actually missionary in their effort. They're trying to recruit people all the time. And so, um, you know, we see that. They, they come to our house, whatever. You have the JWs, you have Jehovah Witnesses, you have the Mormons, you have those of Islam, Hinduism, even Buddhism. Okay, they have missionaries. And they're out there trying to recruit people for their cause. And so we want to give you a basic overview, essentials, just under the, under the surface, generalized, and give you an, an overview of these different things. And it's just an introductory course to this. I'm sure you could find a lot of more information and go into a lot more depth than what we're going to go into. But we're also going to have to uh, have some overlap in our studies, and we're going to have to really deal with some misconceptions that maybe we have, even as believers, um, about the groups that we're going to be covering. And so today's just kind of introduction. We're going to talk about definitions, discernment, and defending the faith and look at some verses that deal with that. Um, next week, we'll look at essential Christian doctrine. And, you know, it's just an overview. And then uh, session three, um, we'll look at Jehovah Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible um, and Tract Society. And then session four, we'll deal with Mormonism. And then session five kind of combined a bunch of Eastern spirituality, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, all that stuff. And then the last week, session six, we'll look at Islam and what they believe. Um, And so that's kind of where we're going to be going. But we really want you to... The goal is to help you think 
biblically, but also help you think critically about some of the things that you can run into so that you can identify these false teachings when you come across them so that you can understand uh, what your beliefs are and also that you can answer if, if they try to recruit you or they try to ask you questions or you're trying to evangelize them, which is, which is also what we want to do. But we want to do that with compassion, clarity, conviction, and confidence. And so as, as we think about those things, we're going to have to do a little basic uh, introduction tonight. And turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And we're all familiar with this verse, no doubt, but I still want to use it kind of as the, as the foundation for what we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks. First uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 15. And it says there, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay? And so, Peter tells us very clearly that the, the three, kind of three purposes that we want to see here is, first of all, we want you to think biblically about cults. We want you to think biblically about world religions. You know, all roads don't lead to Rome. That's not <laughs> how this works. Um, Jesus was very clear and said there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to glory. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Him. So we want you to be able to think biblically about these cults. We also want to help you identify, understand, and answer, be able to answer people from different religions and different cults. As a Christian, we should be, as Christians, we should be able to do that. And then also to help evangelize with clarity, conviction, and confidence. <clears throat> and so we want to be able to hopefully uh, do that by the time we're done. But tonight, we just want to look at <clears throat> the first session. It's just an introductory session. It doesn't, it's not real long, maybe 30 minutes, something like that. But it'd be uh, titled with their definitions, discernment, and defending the faith. Okay? <clears throat> and it's a, it's a good little outline to, to, to go through because it starts with the scriptural foundation. You know, Jesus was very clear in Matthew chapter 28. You can turn to these verses if you want to in your Bibles, or you can just Listen, Matthew 28, we're very familiar with this text, the Great Commission. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus tells us, he gives us kind of the, the sending out message here. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this tells us, Christ tells us here, that we are called as believers to declare this gospel that has changed our lives. It's not good enough just to come to church. We have to go out to this lost and dying world and, and be willing to declare this gospel. But if you turn over to Jude, we also see all the way in the back of the, the New Testament, a little book there, just verse 3 and 4. There's no chapters in Jude, so just 3 and 4. Jude 3 and 4 tells us that we, we're not only to declare the gospel, as the, our Lord told us in Matthew, but we're to defend the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, why? Why why is this a concern of yours, Jude? Well, verse 4 tells us, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All right? There's four things here in those two verses that we see that Jude points out to us. First of all, is that there's one faith. There's not many faiths. All right? He says that, appeal to you to contend for the faith. All right, we, the ecumenical mindset has the idea that, oh, we're all faiths and we're all just to come together. Well, no, there's only one true faith. That's nothing to do with this church. It has to do with whether or not you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not lifting up our church above all others. That has nothing to do with that. That's a local church. I'm talking about the universal church, the church of Christ, where Christ rules and reigns in the heart. There's only one way that that can happen. There's one faith. But then he also tells us here that this faith is immutable. It's unchanging. It says, once for all delivered. Okay? This faith isn't a progressive faith. The faith that Jesus gave us, the faith that, that the apostles gave us, the, the doctrine that we're building our faith on, is not something that is progressive. It's not something that's evolving. Some people believe that. You know, they believe that, well, they have to be in touch with the culture and they have to be relevant in the culture and so they have to take the message of the gospel and change it so it's relevant to the, uh, to the, 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 the culture. And that's just not true. You know, God's truth is always relevant. It was relevant the moment it was written and it's just as much as it's relevant today. But it's unchanging. And that's an important point because today we live in a society where everything is changing. Right? And it's changing fast. It's changing quick. And that's why he says there, Jude says, this was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not continuing to be delivered. It's done. It's over. And then the third thing there, he tells us to earnestly contend for this faith. That word earnestly really has the idea of sincerity. Okay? Or zeal. It's something that you desire to do. That You know what? When someone speaks ill of Christ, you want to speak up. You want to contend for the faith that you hold dear to your heart. You don't just, you know, are quiet over in the corner cowering. And that's, I'm afraid, a lot of believers today. Because they're afraid of getting uh, baited into an argument. Maybe they feel they can't finish. And, you know, there's a fear there. There's always a fear there. But you know what? Where's your faith? The same God that saved you surely can give you the words, you know, to, to share with these individuals, whoever they may be. And then also, at the end here, it tells us that this faith has enemies. It's a faith that has enemies. Okay? Um, there's people out there who are enemies of our faith, and they're, 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 they're serious about creating error. They're serious about their intent to deceive us and those in the world. And so, you see that throughout the Scriptures. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, 
um, when Jesus was speaking of people like this, he was talking and he said, you know what? There are going to be wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. What's that indicate? That indicates people are going to try to come in to the fellowships, to the church, clothed as one thing, and yet they're going to be something else. Okay, that's why we have to be cautious. We have to be careful. Okay, we're called to guard this. And so Jesus himself says that. Or turn over to Matthew, where even there he he gives a little more uh, description of this. Matthew chapter 24. And this is all kind of laying the foundation of why we need to know a little bit about some of these different cults and different religions and what the Bible says about what they believe. And here, you know, Jesus is, is basically foretells the destruction of the temple. He's dealing with these questions about the end of the age. And um, in verse 3, uh, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. He said, tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, Jesus, when is all this going to go down? In verse 4, Jesus says, And Jesus answered him, See that no one leads you astray. For what? For many will come in my name, (laughs) saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Okay, that day is here. It's been here for a long time. You know, um, or down in verse 11. He doesn't just say it there. Look at what he says in verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Or even all the way down in verse 24. He continues with the same thing. For the false Christ and the false prophets will arise and perform. They're even going to overrule nature. And they're going to do wonders and signs, it says. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, that's what's so dangerous even today with a lot of this word of faith doctrine that says, oh, look at all the stuff we can do. And people are drawn in by that. You know, and they want signs. They want wonders. Well, that's going to be what the false Christ and the false prophets do, Jesus says. And he says, if it's possible, they're so good they could even... Deceive the elect. So, it's very important that we understand all this about. And then, so you have Jude's warnings, you have Jesus' warnings. But look over in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, because the Apostle Paul even talks about this. Does anybody know what church Paul spent the longest time discipling? Hmm? No? No? They probably needed it more than... No, Ephesus. It was Ephesus. It was Ephesus, okay? And he spent the longest time discipling the church and raising up leaders in Ephesus. And it's interesting because when he was on his way to Jerusalem toward the end of his ministry in Acts chapter 20, here he asked to meet with the elders at Ephesus. So he says, you know what? I need to come and I need to meet with you guys. I have a warning for you and I have a a, a prophecy to deliver to you. Something that God has on my heart. And this is what he says in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. He says there, pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the elders there. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, look at what's going to happen. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, verse 31, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it's important that we see Jesus' concern, we see Jews' concern. We also see the Apostle Paul's concern here because it's a very real concern. And he even talks about it again over in 2 Corinthians, Paul does. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. The Corinthian church was a mess. I mean, they were just all messed up. There were major issues going on. And so he had to write them two letters. So this is the second one. And in, in verse... 3 and 4 of chapter 11, look at what he says. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, cunningness, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he says there in verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Okay? Paul's fear for the Corinthians was that they would actually embrace this stuff because they were so messed up. And he said, you know what, man? I am really concerned. I am a, Paul was afraid that that would happen. And he even continues over in Galatians. Grandma eats pork chops. Um, so Galatians, Ephesians, Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 6 and 9. Galatians chapter 1, and then verse 6. He, he addresses the Galatians and he says, I am astonished. I am blown away that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This just blew Paul's minds. And you wonder sometimes what Paul or what Jesus would do some of our churches today, thinking, saying, what are you teaching? What are you doing? He says in verse 7, he says, not that there is another one, you understand what he's saying? Paul's saying, you know what? God called you, and I'm astonished that you're turning away to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel. It's, it's, it's disguised as another gospel, but there's really not. Okay? And so he says, there is no other gospel. There's not another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, look at what it says, the gospel of Christ. That's their goal. They want to distort it. And he goes on in verse uh, 8. He says, but even if we, Paul includes himself. Paul says, even if I come to you personally or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we've already preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, let him be damned. 
let him, let him be in hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he closes off there in verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, and yet the whole church growth movement, when you stop and think about it, what is it built on? It's trying to reach out and please man. It's trying to bring the unchurched into the church. It's like, so we got to lower all the standards. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about the blood of Christ. That would be offensive. We want them to come back. So we, we can't offend anybody. You know, it's just a mistake you made. It's not sin. You know, and so they affirm people in, in their sin. Because in their mind, they're thinking somehow that adds up to a platform for evangelism. Which it just doesn't. You just end up with a church full of some believers and a bunch of non-believers. And it's a mess. To be honest with you, it's not something that honors Christ. And so the apostles were not afraid <laughs> to mention names. They called people out. Uh, they, they, they just did. When people were twisting the Scriptures in a way that wasn't honoring to Christ or His Word, or if they were dividing the churches, we saw this when we went through First John, right? We've just been through the study of First John. We saw that John was not afraid to name names. Right? Diotrephes, remember him? Alexander, Hymenaeus, Philetus. All these guys are false teachers. And they're all named for us right there in Scripture. You know, some people say, well, you know, you should never name a false teacher from the pulpit. Why not? I want my people to know who they are. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem mentioning names. So we need to be ready to do the same thing here. So secondly, what are some of these practical definitions before we actually get into all this in the coming weeks. You know, that's our spiritual foundation, the scriptures we read. But what are some practical definitions? What do I mean by that? Well, what is, what's a religion? You know, you could probably go out on the street and ask somebody and you'd get five different answers from five different people. Okay. Does it require a re to be classified as a religion? Do you have to wear robes and have little bells ringing and burning of incense and, and, you know, candles and holy books and temples and holy water? Is that what makes up a, a religion? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, someone, uh, Dean Halverson actually defined religion this way. It's a set of beliefs that answers the ultimate questions. And he lists the questions there for you in your outline. First of all, what is ultimate reality? Any religion is going to ask that question. What is, it, it tries to answer these questions. What is the nature of the world? What is the nature of humanity? What is humanity's primary problem? And what happens after death? Those are the five questions, ultimate questions, that any religion pretty much seeks to answer. And it's interesting that according to that definition, it's not only Christianity... Okay, we, we try to answer those questions. We believe the Bible speaks to that. It's not only Islam or the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons or uh, Hinduism or Buddhism. Buddhism, by the way, doesn't even require you to believe in God. doesn't even require that. And yet it would fit that definition of a religion. Or even a political organization like Marxism. It's an atheistic 
belief system. But you know what? It, it would fit that criteria. So let's, let's drill down a little further because we're not only just talking about Christianity, but we're also talking about religion, but we're also talking about cults. So a religion basically is a set of beliefs that answers the ultimate questions. What is ultimate reality, nature of the world, nature of humanity, humanity's primary problem, and what happens after death? Well, what's a cult? All right? And the same thing here. You could go out on the street and ask ten different people, what's your definition of a cult? And you would get ten... They may be close, but they'd probably be uh, different answers. And you're not going to find any definition of a cult that agrees with each other. It's not going to satisfy everyone. Um, Alan Gomez, a guy who uh, wrote The Challenge of the Cults and New Religions, he says this, A cult would be a group of people which, claiming to be Christian, embraces a particular doctrinal system taught by an individual leader, group of leaders, or organization which denies, either explicitly or implicitly, one or more of the central doctrines of the faith. Um, Rodney Stark, any socially, it's, it, a cult is any socially organized pattern of beliefs and practices concerning ultimate meaning that assumes the existence of the supernatural. When you think of a cult, you have to think of it in two dimensions. Okay, there's two dimensions to what we would call a cult. Okay, there's what you have, the sociological aspect of a cult, and then you also have the, theolo- the theology, theological aspect of the cult. And so you could say it would be the, the behavior side of things and the belief side. How do they expect you to behave, and what do they expect you to believe? On the behavioral side, you could say it's an ideological organization held together by charismatic relationships and demanding total commitment. If you think of any of the cults, you're going to find that's true. The people that went down to Guyana, that died down there, that's what it was. Okay, it was an ideological organization held together by the guy who was the charismatic leader, and he demanded total commitment. That's why everybody killed themselves in the end, right? Total commitment. But it's also an ideology. There's also, to any cult, there's also a a basic core set of beliefs. Just like next week, we're going to look at what our basic set, uh, core set of beliefs is as Christians. Okay, before we get into the air, we need to look at the truth. But it's, it's important to realize that, you know what, they have this, they have this ideological thing going on. You have the theology, theological thing going on, but you also have this charismatic relationships. All right, he says that it involves charismatic relationship. What's he mean by that? He's, he's talking about an extraordinary force of an individual's personality. And you see that. When you, all you got to do is go home and turn on the TV. And you watch some of the false teachers, the heretics on TV. They're just asking for your money. What, they, have, they have personalities off the chart. Okay? And, and it's, it's just very, very persuasive to people. And so you have all these people sending, somebody's mentioned Peter Popoff, money so that he could give them a little jar of, of water from the, the baptism of Jesus. And you really believe that this guy has water <laughs> bottled up from the baptism? Do you, I mean, you really believe it? People do. They do. And it, it's sad, but that's the power of some of these, these individuals. 
it's, it's a demonic force, I would say. It's not just extraordinary. It's, it's demonic. Is, is What's it going to work there? But it, it's important for us to understand that because, you know, if you don't, if you don't see the aspect of this charismatic relationship, if you don't have somebody who's a charismatic leader to lead the cult, you're not going to get them to the point of total commitment. They have to buy in totally. You know, that's why a lot of people who join cults, where do they, do they still affiliate with their families? No. Usually no. Why? Part of the deal is, you know what, no, you, they're unbelievers, brother, sister. You need to come and find the faith with us, you know, on the mountain of whatever. And, and you know, you don't deal with the family. And so families have to go and hire, you know, experts in this field. They actually kidnap their children from these cult leaders and de-brainwash them, debrief them over a period of months to get their minds back. So you have this charismatic relationship, and that brings them to this total commitment. You know, you've heard of certain groups. They're called totalist groups. It's like either you're with us or you're against us. There's no, no gray area at all. And when you, when you join one of these groups, you're just walking into the door because of usually the charismatic leader. They've won you over. So you go in there just thinking, wow, I'm just going to give this my all. And what, what do they do? They take advantage of you. They, they, they manipulate you. They exploit you. Okay? And you don't even realize it's going on. Because you've already, in a weird way, drink, drank the Kool-Aid. So it's, it's very important that we understand that this stuff is very real. And it's very powerful. And so, according to these definitions, you could not only have religious cults, and this goes to what Ambika was thinking, but you can also have psychotherapy cults. Okay, there are people that believe in this psychotherapy cults. There's commercial cults. Okay, you can, we can all think of certain commercial entities. Not that the products are bad or whatever, but it's almost like a cult. You know? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, whatever. But I'm just saying they're not bad. I'm not even saying they're bad organizations, but the mentality is cult-like is what I'm saying. Okay? Or you can have political cults. Okay? See that too. Um, they exist. See, the same dynamic working even though there's no religious content at all. It's the same issue. Get everybody on the same page, and, you know, and that's just the way it works. Um, but for us as believers... The number one question we want to deal with is the question of the truth. Because that's what it boils down to, right? I mean, if we don't have the truth, we don't have anything. The belief question. Um, Robert Bowman defines a cult as follows. As follows. A religious group originating as a heretical sect and maintaining fervent commitment to heresy. Okay, a religious group. Starts off as a religion. That's how Jim Jones started off. Started off as a religion. That's how David Koresh started off. Started off in religion. Originating as a heretical sect and maintaining fervent commitment to heresy. So, now we've come to the $100,000 question. Well, what is heresy? Okay, what is heresy? Well, this guy Bowman defines it for us. This is what he says. A teaching which directly opposes the essentials of the Christian faith. That's what we can say, is a heresy. So that true Christians must divide themselves from all who hold it. In other words, 
it's a teaching that directly opposes the essentials of this book of the Christian faith. And because they oppose that, that's a dividing line for us. All right. Um, another Alistair McGrath from King's College defines it this way. Heresy is best seen as a form of Christian belief. Listen to this. That ultimately ends up subverting and destabilizing and destroying the core of the Christian faith. That's a heresy. And that's why the New Testament constantly says, be, be on guard about this. Because a heresy doesn't come into the church saying, hey, this is a big lie. Please believe me. It doesn't do it that way. It sneaks in. And pretty soon you're, you're, you're following something. You're following a movement. Okay, and pretty soon you're, you're just accepting everything the movement says. Yes. And it's, it's affirming to the flesh. And so you just go down that road. Uh, he continues. He says this. It's a Trojan horse. A means of establishing, whether by accident or design, an alternative belief system within its host. Heresy appears to be Christian, but it is actually an enemy of faith that sows the seed of faith's destruction. Okay? It means that it sneaks in, and before you know it, it's, it's destroying your own faith. And you thought it was good. Okay? Um, I'm thinking of one example in the past several years. Um, there was a certain book that was going around. And on the surface, it looked pretty good. Okay? But when you begin to read it, you begin to say, well, wait, I mean, this guy's saying this, this guy's saying this, this. And it had to do with marriage and things like that, relationships. And it was, it was off. It wasn't biblical. But you, you had really had to dig. And then once you begin to kind of un, un, uncover the error, then you begin to see the error on almost every page. It's like, wow, this isn't just here. You kind of see what he means over here. Because, see, and that's, it's so, so deceptive. You know, and that's why it's so important that when you're reading, if you're a reader and you're going to a Christian bookstore and you're, you're, you're reading authors, be careful who you're reading, what you're reading. Don't just think, well, it's a Christian bookstore. I guess everything in there is good. No, it's not. Anybody remember Walter Martin, the original Bible answer man? Okay. Um, he's deceased now with the Lord. Um, he was the original, before Hank Cranagraph ever came around, he was the original Kingdom of the Cults. He wrote a book called Kingdom of the Cults, which is a great book on all these different cults. He used to say this, there is a language barrier when we are dealing with cults as believers. He says there's a language barrier. He says cults use the same vocabulary that we do, but they redefine the terms. See, that's why a Mormon or Jehovah, oh, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, not my Jesus, you know. You know, so it, it's, it, they redefine the terms. Okay? So that's, that's the, the definitions of religion, cult, heresy. Um, Robert Bowman, this one individual, he points out six categories where cults usually um, kind of go wacky on. And they just kind of focus on these. The first one is Revelation. Um, they usually, not the book of Revelation, but just Revelation in general, okay, including the book of Revelation, okay. But it seems like cults and cult leaders, they, they take Revelations and, and, and the book of Revelation, and they, they, they take that teaching and they distort it. They deny it. And then what they do is, is 
they add to Scripture in a way that leads people to destruction. In other words, I've heard people on TV say, you know, the Lord, you know, the, yesterday morning, the Lord gave me a new truth, and I'm going to share it with you today. Here's what he said. And it's just like, you know, and I'm thinking, whoa, that is dangerous. Because you're saying, thus saith the Lord. You know, and I've even heard people of the likes of Benny Hinn say, you know, I know some people teach this, but there's a new, a new revelation for us. And this is what God has given me. And it directly opposes what we see in Scripture. This is how bold they are sometimes. They, they lead people to destruction. And a lot of times they have these false claims. They literally make stuff up about having prophetic or apostolic authority. You know, and then when you accuse them of something, you know what they say? Oh, the Bible says, you know, you better not touch God's anointed. I'm anointed, brother. You can't, you can't question my authority. That's what they do. And so it's kind of a, they paint a picture where you, they just have all hold bar. They, they can do whatever they want because they're the one in charge of it. An example of dealing with Revelation, you know, the Mormons, when you think of the Mormons, how did they start? Joseph Smith, right? What did he do? He was a prophet, they say, um, and he had the God him the revelation of what the Book of Mormon's Book of Mormon and other writings. Um, you take the Jehovah Witnesses for example; they believe that God only speaks through the Watchtower Society. That's it, and the Watchtower Magazine, and only those who are part of that class can interpret the Bible. And they know their stuff. They know what they're talking about when it comes to their own cultic beliefs. And they're very dangerous because of that. All right? Because they're very well versed in the, their, their cultic uh, understanding. Or you think of Christian science. You know, Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, science, health, and keys to scripture. All that. Okay, well, God gave me this. So that's our new book. Or the Seventh-day Adventists. You know, they had LNG... Uh, White is their prophetess. And so all her writings were inspired. So when it comes to Revelation, that's one area that they really kind of create a headway in because they know that if they can say that God gave them some new truth, they can take this you know, train wherever they want to go. The second area where they, they, they cause some problems is on the subject of God, God himself. Okay, they, Cultists tend to teach... Uh, things that promote false gods, or they may even distort the true God through their teachings. So they do both of those things. You think about the Mormons. How many here people here know how many gods the Mormons have? Anybody? They don't know. <laughs> they don't know how many, right? They just don't. There's, it's endless. Uh, and then you have Hinduism, who I think they have, last time I checked, about 33 uh, million gods. At least they kind of come up with a number. The Mormons can't even come up with a, a number. Um, the Jehovah Witnesses teach things like the Trinity is a pagan lie. That only the Father, Jehovah, is God. There's no such thing as the Trinity. Or even within the realms of what we call Christianity. You have the oneness Pentecostal folks. Very dangerous group. They believe the Trinity is false as well. They don't believe in the Trinity. Because they believe that Jesus is all the members of the Trinity combined in one. 
So Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is Jesus, the Son. There's no Trinity. That's why they're called the Oneness Pentecostal. And so when you stop and think about it, they get it wrong in so many different ways when it comes to God. Okay? And, and the reason I'm going over these is because if you want to know if someone's in a heretical cult or, or something that's not lining up with the Christian faith, you can ask them, well, what does your church believe about this? What does your church believe about that? And they'll probably tell you. And if it doesn't line up with Scripture... Okay, another area is Jesus Christ. If you really want to stir the hornet's nest, bring up the subject of Jesus Christ. Because a lot of times they deny his unique lordship. They deny his genuine humanity. They deny his true identity. Um, for example, the Jehovah Witnesses. They believe that, that Jesus started out as Michael the Archangel. And while on earth, he was a perfect man, but that was it. He wasn't God. No more, no less. The Christian science folks, they believe that Jesus was a man, but this is interesting. He also, they, they, he had a, they, they also have this divine principle idea that only resides in, in Jesus and in you. It's just a weird, weird thing. I didn't really understand. I couldn't make sense of it. They believe that he was a man, but also a, Jesus was a divine principle or a divine idea. And that divine idea resides in all of us. You know, it's kind of wacky. Mormonism. They believe that Jesus was not born of a virgin. Instead, they believe that God the Father came down and had relations with Mary to give Jesus a body. Kind of sick. That's what the Mormons believe, yes. Or if you think of, you remember Reverend Moon, Unification Church? Um, they believe that Reverend Moon is the real Messiah, Jesus isn't, and that Jesus is bowing down to him. That's how bold they are. So they, they get Jesus usually all wrong on that. Um, and that's why, see, I, what I'm doing, I'm trying to paint a picture for you to understand that, you know what, these are key things that we need to have an answer for as Christians. Well, who do you think Jesus is? You should be able to give an answer. What about salvation? The next subject here. You know, cults usually... They'll, they'll either be very legalistic or they tend to be very licentiousness. They'll just say, oh yeah, there's no sin anymore. Just do whatever you want. That's why cult leaders usually will have many wives and many children, like we saw with Koresh, like we saw with Jim Jones, because there is no more, more morality. They write their own ticket on that. And whatever they say, because they're the charismatic leader and they're the divine leader of this group, whatever they say goes. So if Jim Jones says, well, you know what? God gave me a new revelation, and it says, he said that, you know, not only is Ambika my wife, but four other ladies are going to be my wives too. And the people just go, okay. Because they're brainwashed. They don't, they don't have anything to stand up against that. They deny the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection when it comes to salvation. You know, Mormons believe this. They believe if you want to have eternal life, you have to earn it. Through your own personal worthiness. And if you don't do that, you have no chance, pardon the pun, in hell of getting to heaven. It's, it's sad, but that's what they believe. And that's why when you look at Mormons, usually they're very upstanding people. They are. Well, they have to be. I mean, they're not going to make it, right? I mean, that's why they're, they're that way. It's, it's part of that whole salvation effort there. Or the Jehovah Witnesses. If you're not a faithful member of the Watchtower Society, you have no hope at all in, for eternal life. None. 
Uh, and then the next, the next one here is the church. Okay, what do they believe about the church? Um, a lot of cultic belief systems and leaders will tend to lead people away from the fellowship from true Christians until they utterly reject the church. I've seen this happen. You know, and somebody gets mixed up with a cult and pretty soon, you know, they're... they're sporadic in their church attendance and you say, Where you well, you know, I've been really learning from these people. <laughs> say, Whoa, well, who are these people? <laughs> you know, and, you know, an example of someone I don't think she would mind me sharing, but was uh, Christy Dukovic. She was kind of yeah, yeah. being groomed by the Jehovah Witnesses before she came to our church. And I think Joe kind of finally said, uh, I don't know, this is right around, but you know, you're not spending any more time with these people. Go find yourself another church. And that's when she came here, and they both came here and came to the Lord. But, you know, it's, it's such, such an uh, intense thing. But see, they, they desire to, to take people away from the true church. Mormonism teaches that when Joseph Smith went out for his interview, right, with the father and the son in the sacred grove, this is what they teach, um, that Jesus told Joseph Smith, all the churches are wrong. you got to start over, Joe. Sorry. So go start your own. And that's, that's how it started. I mean, this is kind of crazy. But you see what they're doing. They're isolating themselves from the true church, and they're saying, unless you're part of our group. There's another group called the, the Bramhites. Bram, Bramhamites. And they, they were followers of William Marion Branham. And he was this self-proclaimed prophet. He died back in 1965. But he has followers all over the world. And one of their tenets still today is that if you're going to be part of their group, you have to leave your church and join their organization. They won't tolerate anybody that does anything less than that. Um, and then lastly here, when it comes to the future, uh, they make all these false predictions for which they claim authority. Uh, they claim that Jesus has already uh, returned. They actually say this. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, they say that Jesus returned invisibly in 1874. <laughs> I don't know how they knew it, but that's what they said. But now they say, no, no, no. If you talk to a Jehovah Witness now, they changed everything. And they say, well, no, it actually wasn't 1874. It was 1914 <laughs> that he invisibly returned. And, and they've gone, you know, they've said Armageddon's happened several times. You know, several dozen times they're supposed to happen. And they've been wrong every time. You know, you think of people like Harold Camping, who makes these predictions kind of things. It's just ridiculous. Um, and so some of these characteristics that we're looking at here describe cultic groups that make no claim even to be Christian. Uh, and because mentioned Scientology. They're not a Christian group. Or the Baha'i faith. It's not a Christian group. You know, and we're not here to badmouth everybody. That's not our point. Okay, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that we as Christians will understand what we have to deal with out there. You know, we need to reach out in love to these people. We need to reach out with the gospel to these people. They need to come to a proper understanding of the truth. And so let's go back to this behavioral idea for a moment. You know, and stop here and think, why are people drawn into cults? Okay, why, I mean, if they're so stupid and they're so weird when you look at them, why would people be drawn into them? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, the tactics used to recruit people. These are people that they make, they're living doing this. Okay, of recruiting, converting, and holding members. They have their little bag of tricks. Um, 
it was, we were talking about Robert Tilton, who was a Christian evangelist, word of faith teacher who kind of went off the tracks. Um, one of his college buddies, I think he went to, I don't know if it was ORU or wherever he went to college, but they, he said he used to stand in the mirror in the room, in their dorm room, for hours practicing his stick. Practicing what he was going to do after he got his degree. He was going to go on the TV and he was going to make billions of dollars. And he did. And he would practice. And that's what they do. And that's why they're so poised. That's why they're so polished. Because they're working to deceive people. Um, so you have their, their, their tactics. And, and you know what? These work on a lot of people. That's why they use them. Okay? Uh, it's not just, you know, to dispel a myth here, a lot of people believe this, unfortunately. That, well, you know, you have to be kind of either a loser or a misfit or something to join a cult. No, you don't. You don't. I mean, just, I mean, if you just, in, in California itself, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talented, attractive, successful people involved in cults. They're the ones that fund these organizations. Um, but they all have similar things in common. They usually have no training in the truth. No one's ever sat down with them and gone over the truth of the Word of God with them. Um, secondly, usually there's some kind of a traumatic loss or crisis in their life somewhere. Maybe it was when they're younger. Maybe it was when they're older. It could be as simple as something as a divorce or who knows what. But they've just found people that study this stuff have found these similar things. Um, and what that does is it allows them to become more vulnerable. All right? And that's the second thing there, the personal vulnerability of the potential recruit. People who are involved in a cult they're trained. I mean, hours and hours and hours, they're trained on how to find, when they're talking to somebody, you ever hear the, the, the you know, the people talk about uh, Gary, or not, I think it's Gary Chapman, with the, the love language, right? Well, these people are trained to know your love language. Probably in the first two minutes they talk to you. They know what makes you tick. They just have an innate ability to read you like nobody could ever read you. And so when they are talking to you, it, it was interesting because when we uh, went to a, uh, a hotel presentation at a place we went to, Emmanuel and Shelley went there as well. And we were talking about our experiences. You know, it was one of those, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, where you go and they, they show you the, the room or the uh, potential timeshare thing. Yeah, you know, and you get a free night or whatever. That's what it was. And so I was just talking to Emmanuel the other day, and they just came back from one of these things, and it was the same one we went to. And I was telling him, I said, yeah, you have, you know, when we came back, I said, yeah, the guy that did us, man, you know, mentioned what we did and, you know, told me his pastor, and he said his wife was the head of some Sunday school and the local church, big church, and oh, yeah, brother, da 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 da, da. You know, well, And then, you know, kind of like after he found out we didn't have any money and we weren't going to buy the whatever anyway, we just wanted the free night, you know. I mean, he dropped us like a hot rock, you know. It was like, see, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I was kind of wanting to go, man, well, good to meet your brother. And you're you're out of here, you know. Here's your 200 bucks. Go have a nice meal on us, you know. And the same thing happened to Emmanuel. He said it was so weird. He goes, because when he went there, 
they were doing this whole spiel, and he thought, you know, I want to kind of cut this off. So he was, he was telling the, 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 the guy, he said, you know, he goes, my wife and I, you know, we're, we're hopefully going to have, uh, working on having a child, and so, you know, our priorities kind of changed, so we're probably not going to be buying anything today. And he goes, oh, brother, you know what? No, he said, he goes, you know what? That's, that's even better because then you can, you know, you can uh, provide for your children. And da, da, da. he goes, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't want to go into debt. And, oh, you're a Christian? And he goes in his bag and he pulls out a Bible. And he goes, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> and he had the same experience. It wasn't even the same guy. And at the end, Emmanuel said, well, I'm not going to buy you. You know, I was looking forward to saying goodbye to the guy. And the guy just, he wasn't even around. He's like, see you later. You know, and it was just kind of weird. But he said they took like 30, 40 minutes. And it's what they did with us. Kind of buttering us up, getting to know us, getting to you know all this stuff. And for the most part, we talked about church and all that stuff. They know how to do all this stuff. And I'm not, I don't know whether these guys were sincere or not. I would say they probably weren't, but I don't know. Just by the way they, we departed so quickly. <laughs> after they realized we weren't going to buy it. But they know how to read the vulnerability of people. And so when they do that, they, they just, they know when someone needs attention. They can tell. They know when someone, boy, you know, this person is, is depressed or, or this person is lonely. So we're going to provide people, friends for them. You know, this person feels slighted, maybe physically. They're not getting physical attention. So we're going to give them physical attention. You know, they know how to do all that. And what it does is it lowers people's defenses. And pretty soon they're walking right through the door. Proverbs 27, verse 7 says, One who is full loathes honey. But to the one who is hungry, everything bitter, look at what it says, is what? Is sweet. So even though they're dishing up this garbage, theology and manipulation, they're so starved for any kind of affection or attention, they buy all in, see? Um, or Proverbs fourteen twelve, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We really have to be on top of our game, especially in the society we live in. Uh, well, how can we respond to this? Let's close off with this. How do we respond? Um, do we respond with ignorance? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the Mormons believe. I don't know. Do we, do we respond with indifference? Yeah, I really don't care. not going to bother me. I don't care. Uh, do we res- respond with inertia? Just like, you know, it's not worth the effort. I'm not going to go there. We can't. As Christians, we're not called to that. We have to have, first of all, a mature grasp of Scripture. We have to have a mature grasp of Scripture. Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one what? What's it say? Approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This isn't something for the lighthearted. This isn't a willy-nilly little side project you do on Sundays. This thing we call Christianity. It's 24-7. And it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of mental work. You've got to work through things. You've got to understand things. You've got to practice things. It's not easy. That's why Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you know what? You have to what? Deny yourself. Why? Because it's going to take everything you've got. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 and 14 says that we have to practice discernment as the fruit of fellowship. It says, but solid food is for the mature, 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained. See that? By constant, what? Practice to distinguish good from evil. You can't just walk out of here and go out into that toxic world and go, "Eh, I guess it doesn't matter what people believe. Doesn't matter. No, we need to have those, those powers of discernment trained. How do we do that? Through reading the Word. Through coming to Bible study through attending services on Sunday, through fellowshipping with other believers, through going on the web and listening to God-honoring messages that will build us up in our faith. All those things are necessary. If you're relying on just a Sunday morning sermon to get you through the week, you are sorely mistaken. You are sorely mistaken. Or Ephesians, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 14, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why did he give these, these individuals to the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer, what? Be children, goo goo gaga, no, tossed to and fro, by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We don't want to be that kind of Christian. We want to be the kind of Christian that can recognize an error like that. And you don't do it in a self-righteous way. It's not like you're walking around saying, I'm all right and everybody else is wrong. That's not what we're preaching here. We're just saying, you know what? There's so much garbage out there. You better have your discernment at the top of its game. And you have to be vigilant. Vigilant. First uh, Thessalonians 5 says, But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Test everything, he says. Don't take anything. I don't care if I'm saying it or somebody else is saying it or John MacArthur saying it. doesn't matter. Test it. Where does that say that in the Bible? First uh, John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We've got a lot out there. Or Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness. And then it says they examined the scriptures, look at this, daily to see if these things were so. When they were taught something, they said, hey, hold on there, Jack, I've got to check it out here. Yeah, I'm just going to believe you because you call yourself a pastor or an elder or whoever you are, evangelist or whatever. I'm going to, if it's not in line with what this book says, you're out of order. That's the kind of mentality we need to have. And then lastly, practice caring outreach. Like I said, we're not here condemning everybody to hell and we're the only ones going to heaven. That's not our, our heart. Our heart is to win these people because they're lost. To have an outreach to them. 2 Timothy 2.25 Paul tells Timothy that you should correct your opponents with gentleness. Okay? God may perhaps grant them, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. All right? So next week we're going to look at what is our standard for truth.